marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, you that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Amen. Turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy, then Titus. I'm going to read the letter this morning. Um, this would have been the custom when a church received a letter from, especially the Apostle Paul, they would have read it in the assembly. And while this is specifically addressed to one man, we're going to see here as we work through this that it's truly a letter for the church. So, the book of Titus, the letter of Paul to Titus, begins like this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, 
They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in your word today. Give us what we need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When people have attended church for any length of time, and for one reason or another, it's time to find a new church, maybe they've moved, maybe they've grown in their knowledge of the scriptures and have come to understand that that the church they had been in has come to, or holds a different doctrine than they do, or maybe the church has troubles of one sort or another. But when it's time to find a new church, Christians, at least American Christians, we often have a pretty good idea of what we're looking for in a church. And it's probably true that everyone is looking for a church that is healthy. Yet contrary to conventional wisdom, size is not an indicator of a healthy church. The biggest church in America is unhealthy because it's led by a a false teacher. Small churches are sometimes small because they're dying due to the state of their health, due to the fact that they have wandered from the truth and maybe have refused to proclaim the gospel. No one wants to be a part of an unhealthy church. An unhealthy church makes for unhealthy disciples. 
unhealthy disciples makes for unhealthy families. As we're going to see as we work our way through Paul's letter to Titus, and then also uh, when we get there, his first letter to the Corinthians, when we get there later on in the year, the Bible is very concerned with defining and teaching us how to be disciples. I made mention last week that, that this year, 2021, Lord willing, we're going to intentionally focus on discipleship, on making disciples. This will mean that there will be various ministries that will develop, not simply for the sake of having a program to meet felt needs, we've actually resisted this on purpose, but rather with the goal of spurring one another on of encouraging one another in our faith and practice and of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, as Ephesians chapter 4 says. We're going to be talking about this specifically at our annual meeting in February, by the way, the first Sunday of February. But we need to begin, as we think about these things, as we look into this, we need to begin not with what other churches are doing, but with what the scriptures tell us, what the scriptures actually say. And a good place to look at this is this letter of Paul to Titus. And instead of doing sort of the typical background work as we begin this study, as we start working through this book, I'm going to simply let the scriptures speak for itself. I'm going to let Paul tell us what is happening as we go through this. But as we begin, I do need to sort of point out lay out kind of briefly a couple of thoughts for you to consider and hopefully my prayer is for you to embrace as we work through this. The first is this. Titus, along with First and Second Timothy, make up what are very commonly called the pastoral epistles. And while that is a completely appropriate designation, what that means is, in calling them the pastoral epistles, is that people often conclude that it means that they are only, or at least primarily, written for pastors. But the truth is that these are written for the benefit of the church. This letter, as part of Holy Scripture, is written for your benefit, directly, not just indirectly. It is written directly for your benefit. This is written for the direct benefit of Logansville Community Church. Secondly, as I've kind of hinted at, discipleship is one of the underlying themes of this letter, the book of Titus. And discipleship is at the very heart of the life of the church. Jesus Christ commissioned his apostles to go and make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then he explained exactly what that looked like when he continued and said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Making disciples, according to Jesus in Matthew 28, consists of baptizing believers, immersing them into Christ and his church. And it also involves teaching them to observe or to obey all that he has commanded. And again, Titus is one of those books of the Bible that expressly teaches us how this looks, how it works, how a church should go about making disciples. Well, what is a disciple? We should start with a definition 
Technically speaking, a disciple is a a pupil, a follower of a teacher or a rabbi. But is that what we're talking about? Merely making followers, people who are interested in following Jesus' teaching? Is Jesus looking for followers? Not really. Consider what happened in John chapter 6, verse 66. After Jesus taught a particularly difficult teaching, this is what happened, John 6, 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So technically, they were disciples in that they were following him. They followed him at least for a while. But when Jesus now uses this phrase, when he says in Matthew 28, go and make disciples, he's really referring more like passages like like Titus chapter 2. Look at verses 11 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This, I think, is a good definition of discipleship training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a much better description or definition of a, of a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ than to merely say that he's a, he's a follower. So these are the things that we're going to be focused on as we work through this. And one other thought that I want to plant in the back of your mind, and that is that um, we're going to keep coming back to this as we go through this book, but from beginning to end, this letter is all grace. From the very first word to the very last sentence, Paul's letter to Titus is all of the grace of God. This is a book of the Bible that is filled with, with grace, which made the offertory so much more even appropriate for this moment. Grace, grace. And so as we walk through this opening greeting, we can see, this is pretty simple outline today, a person, purpose, and message of the letter to Titus. So let's look just at these first three verses. Let me read them again. Remember, grace is all over this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Semicolon. (laughs) We'll pick it up there again, Lord willing, next week. Paul and his wonderful sentences. So we're looking at the purpose, the the person, purpose, and message of this letter. And the person, that is the person writing this, is pretty clear. So the person is Paul. It's the very first word. This is typical of the style of letter writing from the first century where the author begins by identifying himself. Paul. We were first introduced to Paul uh, before his conversion, when he still went by his Jewish name, Saul. This is at the end of Acts chapter 7. We we read these words. It's the very end of Acts 7, and and actually the first verse of chapter 8 says this, Then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul. 
That's this man. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he, heard, when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Then in Acts chapter 9, we read of Saul's conversion. It says this, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And then a little bit later in the same chapter, Jesus himself says of this Saul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Then at the beginning of, uh, in Acts chapter 13, there's another shift in Saul's life. He's converted, he is set apart, and then in chapter 13, there's another shift when he and Barnabas are sent off into the Gentile world, off to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. And at that point, when he is sent to the Gentiles, Paul begins to use his Roman name, Saul begins to use his Roman name, Paul. This is the one and the same person. This is Paul that we see here in verse one. This is Paul, the author of this letter. Now, just a minute ago, I said that from the very first word to the very last sentence, grace is all over this letter. Can you see the grace of God on display in the fact that Paul has been chosen to write this? Can you see the grace of God in display that Paul was knocked down and saved by Jesus himself? Can you see the grace of God in that Paul, Saul, was knocked down and saved and set apart and sent to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. Can you see the grace of God in this? Paul, also called Saul, the great persecutor of the church, a man who in his own words from Galatians chapter 1, he said this of himself, he said, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul, by the grace of God, was not only saved by God's grace, he's even writing a letter that we have that has been included in Scripture. And I just want to point out here, and, and I want to reiterate something that that Chris has said in Sunday school um, a few weeks ago. This isn't a later development. It was known early on that this was Scripture, that Paul's writings was Scripture. The Apostle Peter, in his second letter, he calls Paul's writings Scripture. And he also said this at the beginning of 2 Peter. Peter said, and it applies to Paul's letter to Titus, in 2 Peter 1.21, he said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That applies to this letter. 
Paul is writing this as he is being carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is inspiring, is writing this letter through Paul's hand. This is grace. Paul is an entirely new man by the grace of God, and he's being used in ways I am sure that he could never fathom. And here we are 2,000 years later still studying and dissecting his letter, this two-page letter to an obscure pastor of Crete, an island in the Mediterranean. But even more than this, Paul was saved for specific good works. This is true of every Christian, by the way. We need to keep this in mind. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or look at the end of chapter 2, verse 14. It says that, verse 14 says that, that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Now, in this introduction, the good works that Paul is zealous for are common to all Christians in one sense and yet are unique to the Apostle Paul in another. So, so here's what I mean. He writes this, that first line, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that word servant there in the ESV, the English Standard Version, or bond servant in the New American Standard, is the Greek word doulos. And the best English translation that we have of this word now, the, the way that we commonly use this word, is slave, as opposed to servant. Servant isn't strong enough of a word. It's slave. Now, I don't want to go into this all again. I actually preached on the idea of a doulos a couple of times before, even, even earlier this last year. But the idea behind this word doulos is that we are not our own. We have been purchased with Christ's own blood and for service to him. We are owned by Jesus Christ in that sense. This is common for all believers, all Christians. We are slaves of God. We are a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. But Paul had a very specific service. He tells us specifically in his introduction to the, to the Roman church, his letter to Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, he says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He says he serves in his spirit with the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things that Paul wanted to do when he reached Rome, as he's writing that letter, was preach the gospel because he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. So yes, Paul was, a, Paul was a slave to Christ in the same way that all genuine believers, in the same way that we are slaves to Christ. And yet his specific bond servanthood I could put it that way. His specific service was in serving God in gospel work. This is what he was saved to do, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
We know, as he says in Romans chapter one, it was not something he was ashamed of. Ministers of the gospel have a specific responsibility. 1 Corinthians chapter nine, verse 16. See if, see if this sounds like he was a slave. Uh, he says this, again, this is still Paul. He says, for I preach, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That sounds like the language of a slave, doesn't it? Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. But this is a joy-filled, eager-to-obey slave. I also want to point out something here that's it's kind of an aside, and yet it's also a, a theme throughout the letter. This is the only time in Paul's writing that he ever calls himself specifically a servant of God or a bond servant or a slave, a doulos of God. Now he does call himself a servant of Christ in the introductions both to Romans and Philippians. And then in Acts 20, verse 19, he says that he serves the Lord, but this is the only direct use of the phrase servant of God. And the reason I want to point this out is because I think this is deeper than we first notice. See, often when the Bible refers to God, it's referring to God the Father, right? That's probably what you thought of when you hear the word God. Or when you read God, you often think of God the Father. That's fine and appropriate, yet the Christian faith has always believed that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so it's completely appropriate to call Jesus God. That was Thomas's confession. Remember in John chapter 20? My Lord and my God, he says. So look at three verses, one in each chapter of Titus here. I just want you to see this. Chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes, At the proper time, Manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Got it? God our Savior. Jump over to chapter 2. Look at verse 13. He writes, picking it up in the middle of a sentence, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now look at chapter three, verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And it continues. God, our Savior. Do you see what Paul is doing? It's explicit in that middle verse, in chapter two, verse 13. And it's implied throughout the rest of the letter. Paul is saying Jesus is God. He's not the Father, he's not the Spirit, but nevertheless, Jesus is God the Son. This is one of the underlying themes of the book of Titus, and of course, all of the New Testament. And so when we read this letter, we should read carefully, knowing that ultimately, Titus is an epistle that affirms the Trinitarian God. In fact, Listen for the Trinity in this. Let me read chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. You're listening for the Trinity here, okay? Father, Son, and Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you hear this trinity in there? In fact, the God, our Savior, is often referring to the Father. This is the mystery and the glory of the Trinity. This is huge in that this is an underlying theme of this letter. God in his grace is revealing more and more of his nature and his character, even kind of subtly through this book. But the grace of God upon Paul continues in that he is also, not only is he a doulos, a slave of God, but he is also an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, on the one hand, the word apostle, it it simply means sent one or one who is sent. But on the other hand, this this is referring to a specific office held by specific men with a specific authority, and none of those men are alive today. There are no apostles alive today. Well, they're all alive in heaven. There are no apostles alive living here on earth today. This, is a, this office of apostle goes right back to Paul's conversion. It goes right back to when Jesus himself said of him in Acts chapter 9, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was set apart by Jesus to be an apostle, to carry the name of Jesus Christ before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then Paul expands on this when he shares his testimony. In Acts chapter 26, he says this in verse, uh, beginning in verse 14, He's sharing his testimony of of his salvation and he said, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, who called himself the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church by the grace of God was nevertheless made an apostle by Jesus himself. He was saved by Christ in order to serve Christ by being sent on behalf of Christ to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And for Titus, all of this means that Paul is writing this letter. Just in, just in that first phrase, Paul, a, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, just in that first phrase, it means that Paul is writing with a humble authority. He's writing humbly because God's grace has saved him. And yet he is writing with the authority of the Godhead. He is writing the word of God. 
These things are not Paul's opinions. This is the word of God. This is all the authority of God himself. And so we would do well to pay attention. We would do well to take heed to the things written here. But then Paul not only identifies himself, not only comes to Titus with this humble authority, but he also gives his purpose for the letter as well. After that phrase, he says this in in the first verse. He says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. This is why he is writing. And what's clear is he's not simply writing for Titus. Can you see it in there? But he's also not just writing for the church under Titus's, uh, the Titus leads, but he is writing for all Christians. But he's not just writing this out of the blue either. John Calvin, in his commentary on Titus, he wrote this. He said, For there are many evil men who refused Titus's leadership. Hence, Paul serves here as a kind of shield. And he reinforces with his own authority the one who is under attack. Accordingly, it was not for Titus' sake that he claims these honorable titles for himself. Titus knew him as a father. Paul is writing this for the people under Titus' charge to take these things seriously, to listen to Titus' instruction and teaching, which is why he's writing with authority. And what's clear is that this is not just a letter of casual advice. This isn't a fatherly instruction type of letter. This is a This is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. This is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. The sake of your faith, your salvation. You would do well to pay attention to these things. So there are a couple of things that that means. A couple of, um, we could draw a couple of conclusions from even that phrase. First, the first thing that should pop out to us is that there are those who are elect. There are those who are chosen by God. This should not be as controversial as it sometimes is. That word there, it actually means exactly what it says. They're chosen, elect of God. Listen to two passages, I think, that will help us to understand this. The opening of Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, says this. Again, this is very clear. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he says this, He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember though, this is all of God's grace. This does not mean that God looked down through the corridors of time and saw that you would choose to become a Christian. It means exactly what it says. It means God chose, he predestined the elect, those whom he has redeemed. So, So let me ask you this, why would God choose you? 
Why would God choose Titus? Why would he choose Paul? He persecuted the church. Why would he choose you or me? Why would God choose us? This is grace. The answer to that question is this is God's grace. The second thing that this means is that this letter, this book, Titus, is written for the Christian's faith, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. It is written to strengthen and bolster our faith in Christ. It's written because our faith is something that needs to be nurtured and encouraged. We need to be fed with the pure milk of God's word. But he writes this not only for the sake of our faith, for our encouragement and strengthening, but also for our knowledge of the truth. This is the truth of why God saved us, how God saved us. This is the truth of the gospel. And ultimately, this is the truth of Jesus Christ himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Remember that phrase from the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That corresponds to this phrase, that which accords with godliness, all that he has commanded. And so Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we might learn to lead godly lives because he has chosen us and set us apart, saved us for the purpose of good works. He has purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 12 of chapter 2, he trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is one of his purposes for writing. And so with a humble authority, Paul because of God's grace, wrote this letter for the sake of your faith, for the sake of your knowledge, for the sake of your godliness. But when the scriptures speak of faith, knowledge, and godliness, it's not simply a list of things to believe and know and do, right? We're not talking about behavior modification. There's a a message, a message that we must keep to the forefront of our minds, Look at his message here, verses two and three. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. In hope of eternal life. Last week we looked at that word hope from Psalm 20. So if you want a good biblical understanding of hope, go home this afternoon and read Psalm 20. But until then, listen to what Matthew Henry wrote in his old commentary. He said, this is the further intent of the gospel, the hope of eternal life. The further intent of the gospel is to beget hope as well as faith, to take the mind and the heart from the world and raise them to heaven and the things above. The faith and godliness of Christians leads to eternal life and give hope and well-grounded expectation of it. For God, who never lies, has promised it. I love that that understated kind of definition of biblical hope there. Well-grounded expectation, he calls it, Matthew Henry calls it. 
If you are one of his, if you are one of the elect, if you have been chosen, if you have been redeemed by Jesus himself, if you have trusted in him for salvation, this Jesus is the truth and therefore cannot lie, meaning that by definition, everything that Jesus says is true. If you are his, then God has promised you eternal life. And he has made this promise in the covenant of redemption, that that covenantal promise made among the Godhead before the beginning of time to redeem for himself a people for his own possession. He has promised to save us. From before creation, God has testified that he has desired to be your savior. Consider that. From before creation, God has told us all through his word that he has desired to be your savior and at the proper time, he would send his redeemer. That's what he is saying in verses two and three. Verse three tells us that the hope is now. The gospel is proclaimed, he says, through the preaching of the word, through the preaching of the the logos is the word used there, John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. To preach the word is to preach Christ. To preach Christ is to preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ as disciples for the sake of the faith of God's elect and your knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, has promised. And so as we study Titus. Even as we look at this run-on sentence fragment, my prayer for Logansville Church is that we would be filled with grace, remembering that this is all of God's grace, that we could stop with that first word and not really insert it into the scriptures, but you could say your name there. You could say your name and see how God has poured his grace out on you. That we would be filled with grace. That we would be led by godliness. And that we would live as a witness to Christ. Proclaiming, preaching the Logos. Proclaiming Christ. That we would live as witnesses to Christ. Pray with me. Fathers, we open this letter and we see your grace, your grace to Paul, one who, um, the wages of his sin was death, and yet you in your mercy, Lord, I think of Ephesians chapter two, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which you loved the apostle Paul, Saul, the persecutor of the church, made him alive together in Christ. By grace you saved Saul. By grace you have saved us, Lord. It is my prayer that as we 
consider what it means to be a servant of God, a doulos of our great God and Savior. As we consider what it means for us to be sent, for us to go and make disciples. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are filled with grace, who are led by the godliness that comes through your word and your spirit working in our hearts and minds, that we would live as witnesses to you. Father, it is my prayer that we would be a transformed people, obedient to you, zealous for good works. Father, we pray that as we come to the table as we proclaim his death, the death that gives us life, the death that gave Paul life, the death that gives us life. Lord, as we proclaim these things, as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, Lord, it is my prayer that we would do these things until you come, until Christ returns, that we would lead godly lives in this present age. Lord, it is my hope and prayer that we would be trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives as we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.